0: Thanks, Abe. I love how these hymns have really captured the essence of the culture of grace that should mark us as a church that will really help us in understanding how our church can help the addicted. That is the name of the lecture that I'm going to give tonight in preparation for the uh, trip that I have coming up. But I really have a burden to see our own congregation equipped by the material that we'll look at. Before we begin, I would ask you whether you would expect an addicted person to show up in a typical worship service. Are you prepared for how to react when that happens? What would you do if someone struggling with any form of addiction came up and sat in the front row? Are we tuned as a church to how individual families are struggling with addiction Addiction-related things? Are we tuned to look outside of ourselves, meaning into the community, to understand to some degree the plethora of struggles that exists with various kinds of addictions to various kinds of substances or activities, things along those lines? Are we concerned with reaching our community to address the issue of addiction with the gospel? Have we considered, as a church, as individuals, what the scripture says to address the topic of addiction. Do we believe, do you and I believe as Christians, that addicted people have a place at the table that we share with Jesus Christ? Is there a place at the table for the addicted? In answering the question how our church can help the addicted, what I'd like to do is work through two main questions. Those are as follows. How can the church help addicts? How can the church help addicts? The second one is closely related. How should the church respond when an addict shows up to one of our worship services? I'm going to take some time to really tease out each of those questions. You'll find that definitions, as we proceed, are very important in answering those questions. Understanding what we mean by such terms as addict or addicted is going to be very key in realizing how the scripture comes to bear on that issue that area of ministry that we can offer, so that first question is how can the church help addicts? I want us to first look at what we mean by addict, what we mean by addicted i don 't want to take for granted that everyone in Christendom, much less anyone ev- everyone in, uh, that makes up Emmanuel Baptist Church, understands how the scripture speaks to addiction. Not everyone who calls himself a Christian agrees that the scripture speaks so directly as it being a heart-related issue. And so in the definitions that I'm going to work through, I am going to take a lot for granted. In many ways, this workshop should follow a more in-depth study on how the scripture specifically addresses addiction and what addict means, how the scripture comes to bear on it. There are, broadly speaking, three main camps that Christians can find themselves in. There's we have nothing to say about this, so send our friends and family members, even our church members, to a secular psychologist or psychotherapist or psychiatrist. There's the other end of the spectrum, which is where we would find ourselves, as believing Christians of this church, biblical counselors, those with a commitment to the scripture. We believe that scripture speaks directly to the issue of addiction. Then there's those in between, faithful men and women within the faith, who have concluded that we need to take something from the secular realm and try to blend it with Scripture. That's a more integrationist approach. So there's a uh, a wide diversity of perspectives, but we're going to come at this this evening from a biblical perspective. We're going to bring the Scripture to bear I already mentioned Mark Shaw this evening. He is one of the leading authors, leading researchers, leading uh, advocates for biblical ministry in this realm, and he gives a definition as follows for addiction. He says it's the persistent habitual use of a substance known to be harmful to the user. He's taken the world's definition, which is a persistent compulsive use, and changed it to more scripture-friendly scripturally faithful language, persistent habitual use. The word compulsive gives this air of, I can't do anything about this. It's, without, it's outside of my power. I'm not responsible for this. It just happens to me, and therefore I'm not responsible for it. So it's very clear from a biblical perspective, as we'll go on to, to see here, that in defining what, addict, in defining what addiction is, it's a persistent habitual use of a substance known by the user to be harmful. He goes on to say, quite simply, physical addiction occurs when you repeatedly satisfy a natural appetite and desire with a temporary pleasure until you become the servant of the temporary object of pleasure rather than its master. You see how things are flipped on their head there, the master-slave relationship. The substance has become the master Addiction is likened to slavery and idolatry in the Bible. You use the temporarily pleasurable substance to escape, but in reality you find that you are physically enslaved rather than free. We talked about being free in the gospel tonight as we sung. When you hear the word addiction, I want you to think in more biblical terms, life-dominating sin. If you looked at the scripture... In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where Paul addresses the Corinthians from verse number 9 he says or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of god do not be deceived neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers nor men who practice homosexuality nor thieves nor the greedy nor drunkards nor revilers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. These are people whose lives were marked before being saved by Christ by various life-dominating characteristic sins. Sexually immoral, people whose lives were given over to sexual immorality. Idolaters, people whose lives were given over to worshiping false gods. Adulterers, people who were known to cheat on their spouses. Nor men who practice homosexuality. The natural relationship that God gives between a man and woman having been rejected in favor of relating to people of the same sex. Thieves, people who were marked by stealing things, marked by greed, drunkards, those given to much wine. Paul says in verse number 11, and such were some of you. Such were some of you in the Corinthian church were people who had been redeemed by Christ, washed of their sins, made new in the Lord Jesus such that Paul could say, you were marked by those life-dominating sins. You were addicted in those ways, but Jesus Christ got a hold of you. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Friends, there is much hope in the church that we have to offer those who are addicted if we would just be disciplined and diligent to define it in biblical terms. Ed Welch goes on as another faithful voice in the wilderness to say that Contrary to popular belief, contrary to what many in the church and most people in the world would say, addiction is not a disease. But it's the rule of a substance, activity, or state of mind. Notice how he's branched out now from just substances. Think prescription drugs, illicit street drugs, drugs that you can buy illegally like marijuana, drugs like alcohol that are available to those of proper age. But he's gone into activities. The viewing of pornography, gambling, overeating, or a state of mind. Did you know that narcissism is an addiction to self? That's a state of mind. I am the center of my own universe. It's the rule of a substance, activity, or state of mind, which then becomes the center of life. There's that idea of life dominating. Defending itself from the truth, our sin deceives us so that even bad consequences don't bring repentance and leading to further estrangement from God. To locate it on the the theological map, he says, look under sin. More specifically, since sin is a broad category that includes both self-conscious disobedience and victimizing slavery, find addiction on the side of that theological map under sin that emphasizes slavery. If you've ever come to know someone who has been addicted to a substance, let's say, it is very apparent that there is something about that manner of living that leads you to conclude that that person is enslaved to that manner of living. Now, the root of that issue is in the heart, no doubt about it. And there are certainly external afflictions that can bear upon a person that can set up a context in which poor decisions are made that lead people to pursue things like alcohol, like different activities, to satisfy something that's missing in their lives. But the issue is an issue of the heart. Welch actually considers the very real but not ultimately determinative factors. So these things are issues, but they're not the root of the issue. When he says this, he says, Now add an intersecting but less fundamental category. For a more complete picture of addictions, I love how he nuances this. Add a category that accounts for the many influences that make each person's addiction unique. We all struggle in so many different ways, don't we? But he says this category, this, this nuance that we're adding to this big picture of addictions, includes all the contributing circumstances in our lives. Listen to what he lists. Ways we were sinned against by others, our economic backgrounds, parental examples, sibling examples, genetic tendencies, and a whole host of other influences. These could be summarized, he says, as nature and nurture. I think we've heard these terms before, right? In secular thought, outside of the church, outside of the wisdom of God's word, these influences are separated more than joined but from a biblical perspective they exert the same kind of pressure on us again just to break away from that quote for a second they form the context in which decisions are made that result in people becoming addicted to various things back to what welch says they both function these nature and nurture these external influences on us as temptations that induce our hearts they induce our hearts to say yes to reckless desires. I would squish these two definitions together, and I'll give this definition of what an addict is. I'm going to suggest that a sinner, or an addict is a sinner who has made some very real personal choices, there's that personal responsibility, in response to particular temptations to selfishly pursue something to which they have now become voluntarily enslaved, perhaps even in the midst of some serious, grievous afflictions. So we're dealing with the heart of the issue in the midst of externals. While he or she may have been afflicted in various ways to influence the decisions for which they are responsible before God, and while he or she may also experience some very challenging physical cravings for which medical intervention would be required, make no mistake, if you talk to an ER nurse who is seeing week after week the challenges of addicted people coming in and need to be detoxed, there is no doubt that the medicinal grace of God that's available in the medical system is absolutely required to stop that person from perishing. There are some very legitimate, challenging physical cravings that have to be overcome. But fundamentally, an addict is a self-worshipping sinner get this now, like every other person born in Adam, who both suffers and sins. An addict has the same basic need as any other sinner, salvation from the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin. Now, hopefully it's not too much of a shock to you, being members of this church, exposed to the biblical teaching that we get here, to hear this, but at the heart level, we're no different from the drug addict that might come and visit us. The addicted in our communities are image bearers of God. The people with stories like you and I, they're embodied souls that will live forever, forever in either heaven or hell. Like you and I, they're motivated by either a love for God and others or a love for self. Those are the two arenas in which we operate. We either love ourselves or we love God and others. There's no, there's no middle ground. Like each of us, the addicted person could be tempted by his or her own desires. We, again, we heard that from James chapter 1 this morning. And we can be tempted in the midst of decision-guiding attractions. These are things that are external to us, the things that lure and entice us. But decision-guiding attractions to the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. Just as John says in 1 John chapter 2. Fundamentally... Let me ask you a question. Is the need of one who visits us, who is addicted, any different from the need of you and I? Absolutely not. Salvation from the wrath of God for our selfishness and sin. Now, having framed this biblically, I want us to grapple with the fact that is addiction care just temporal? Are we just looking for people to get cleaned up? and go back to work to serve their families. The biblical perspective sees these people as needing a savior, needing Jesus Christ. And so while temporal relief, while getting them back plugged into society and functional so that they can love their families and feed them is very important. We should be concerned as the church with helping people to that end. We also have a responsibility to the addicted in our families and our communities for their, eternal well-being? Do we not want to see them saved from the wrath of God as we have been saved from the wrath of God just as the Lord Jesus has commissioned us to be concerned about? Understanding who the addicted are and the ultimate need that they have, salvation from God's wrath, we can now look to what the church has to offer because I think the church has something very relevant to help the addict who is framed in the way that we've just framed him or her. We've said that definitions are important So in answering the question, what can the church do to help addicts, we want a couple more definitions to help us. What do we mean by the church? What is the church? Why is the church here on earth? What the church is must guide what the church does, and what the church is supposed to do should guide the help it should give. That's the kind of logic that we're tracing here. John MacArthur's explanation for the church is helpful. He says the church is not... The physical building where Christians meet, nor is it a religious institution, an ethical organization, or a socio-political association. Those are some significant things that are often confused for the makeup and the mandate of the church. But he says, rather, the church is the assembly of the redeemed. Those who have been called by God the Father... To salvation as a gift to his son, it is the corporate gathering of those who have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of Christ, so that they are citizens of heaven and not of this world. We are familiar, I'm sure, with the mandate that our Lord Jesus Christ gives us as his disciples to go, therefore, in light of the authority in heaven and earth that he possesses, to give this command to make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, not some, but all that I have commanded you. We even have the assurance that he goes with us in those endeavors. And it's based on that definition that Kevin, or based on that um, scripture passage, that Kevin DeYoung's definition is so helpful in the book that he wrote with Greg Gilbert about the mission of the church. Listen to what the mission of the church is according to these two bright men. The mission of the church is to go into the world and make disciples by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit and gathering these disciples into churches to make mature disciples. That is why we exist. That they, those who are gathered as the redeemed, might worship and obey Jesus Christ now and in eternity to the glory of God the Father. So as the church... There is absolutely no way to argue out of the fact that we exist on the earth to make mature disciples. When we talk about helping the addicted in our communities, that mandate doesn't change. Sometimes we get nervous when we think about helping people in our communities because we think that we're going to go the way of the social gospel and we're going to leave the gospel behind. That cannot happen if we're to remain faithful as the church. But it is possible to minister the gospel and minister it faithfully, making and maturing disciples in the midst of reaching those who are addicted. If we prioritize anything above making and maturing disciples, then we're missing the mark as Emmanuel Baptist Church and as the church at large. But with such a gospel mandate, we also need to be familiar with the struggles of people around us. The church, for sure, exists to make a mature disciples. Do we not want to see the addicted in our communities become free of their voluntary enslavement to worship not themselves, not the things of this world, but worship the one living and true God through Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ himself, the God-man. So, how can the church help addicts with this idea of what the church is? is in light of what help we have to offer salvation from sin and even some practical measures as we'll look at briefly in a moment what can the church do to help addicts this is what i've suggested here the church can help addicts by maintaining focus on her mission to make known god's grace in the gospel of jesus christ gospel ministry front and center With a commitment to the sufficiency of Scripture to define and address the sinful roots of addiction, the church can faithfully hold out the only hopeful solution to the addict's problem. And what is that only hopeful solution? It's the good news that Jesus came to save sinners of every kind, of every stripe, from the penalty power and soon the presence of sin as they respond in repentant faith to the gospel call. Brothers and sisters, that is no different from how you and I were saved. We already know how to do this. We already steward the gospel. By keeping our efforts centered on the Great Commission to make a mature disciples, our local churches can function in our communities as bright beacons of hope for lost sinners of all stripes to show God's love in practical ways without neglecting our holding out that transforming hope that comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ. That hope that offers freedom from voluntary slavery to harmful substances and activities that suffering sinners pursue out of love for themselves. Freedom is available for the addicts in our families and our communities. As the church establishes, and this is important, I want us to grasp this. As the church establishes redemptive relationships with transforming addicts, not those who are just being reformed, not those who are just in recovery, but those who are by the Spirit being transformed, as we establish redemptive relationships with such people, people in need of change, that's us, minister God's grace to people in need of change. That's them, if I can use that comparison. If you're familiar with Paul Tripp's material, that's the name of his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. Subtitle, People in Need of Change, Helping People in Need of Change. That's all of us but that's where we are as a church. And that's how we'll walk with and worship Jesus Christ together, all sharing that assurance of salvation that we have from God's coming wrath for the sins of self-worship that fueled addiction in the first place. Now, How should the church respond when an addict shows up in a a church service? If we've defined addiction the way that we have, if we've understood the church to be what it is, and we've made suggestions for how the church can help, then we're able to answer this next question quite clearly. How should the church respond? I'm going to argue that the answer to that question is closely tied to what we've considered about what an addict is, and how we engage them as a church of the redeemed. We have been redeemed, we have experienced God's grace, and that should fuel the way that we respond to those who show up in our services that need just as much help that we do. What we believe about the makeup of the church will govern and guide our ministry to the addicted people that the Lord sends our way. Scripture teaches quite clearly how we ought to respond to those whom the Lord makes cross our paths, But I want us to first imagine our first encounter. Put yourselves in Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and three people show up. These are three new people, three people you've never never seen before. There's the middle-aged Christian mother of four. She's wearing jeans and a sweater, and she has an an addiction to pornography. A 50-year-old businessman in a suit and tie whose household is falling apart because he's hooked on gambling, shows up. And then in walks a 22-year-old homeless meth addict with broken and missing teeth who hasn't showered for three weeks. What does an addict look like? What does an addict smell like? What does an addict sound like? Where did your mind go before we gave these three addicted people how might we respond? Let me suggest three ways that we shouldn't respond. These are three ways in which the Lord would want to rebuke us. Sinful partiality. James chapter 2 mentions this case of showing partiality to those in the congregation. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And he pictures this man coming into the congregation, well-dressed, wearing a ring on his finger, the one to whom people flock. Come, come. Sit here with us. Sit here in this special place while others are neglected and are told, you stand over there. You sit at my feet. You're less than that person with the gold ring. James rebukes those who would act in that sinfully partial way. What about the self-righteous judgmental reaction? Luke 18 verses 9 to 10 captures Jesus' words when he teaches to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and treated others with contempt, the following parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray, and one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, Listen, get this attitude. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Those three addicted people come into our midst, Might we find ourselves with that self-righteous, judgmental, I've-got-it-put-together kind of attitude? I'm glad I'm not like that person. May it never be said of us. This third category, I would suggest, is perhaps more dangerous and maybe reflects an immaturity that we have in our knowledge of what the Word of God says about problems that we might face. I've labeled this one, I think it's naivete, but it's assuming that there's no problem for those that we fellowship among, those that come into our midst every week. We look at that mother of four who's got it all put together, it seems. Jeans, sweater, dressed like the rest of us. And yet she's struggling with this addiction to pornography. But she's got it all put together. That businessman in the suit, how could he struggle with gambling like that? His family's wonderful to look at. Look at how put together they are. They could never, ever be struggling in those ways. I think what that attitude reveals, if we're there... Is our lack of regard for the way in which Scripture diagnoses our heart problems so clearly. What it does is it neglects to consider what Scripture says about how fallen and corrupted we all are, even as believers. Now, this isn't a call to go sin hunting, this isn't a call to assume the worst about someone just because of how they're dressed and something that they might say in passing. But it is a call to be familiar with and embracing of what Paul Tripp would call prepared spontaneity. I love that term. Let me explain it, how he does. He says, if we have taken in what the Bible says about God, ourselves, life, sin, and the surrounding world, we are ready to deal spontaneously with things we didn't even know we would be dealing with. So that when someone comes and shares that struggle with you and says, I really don't feel like I have it put together like you all do, I'm not sure that I belong here, we can say, well, I'm actually far worse than you imagine because God's word diagnoses my heart problem more accurately than you could ever perceive. We want to avoid sinful partiality. We want to avoid self-righteousness. We want to avoid assuming that there's no problem by embracing what scripture says and becoming equipped to come alongside people with grace. That leads me to my next point. There's a better way to make Christ known than those three things. What should replace those reactions? What ought to mark our ministries as individuals who make up the church that might one day welcome the addicted into our midst? I'm not going to read our our definition of an addict again, but you'll remember that there's some real choices that have been made in the context of various tough things that this person has struggled with And like every other person born in Adam, they need salvation from the penalty, power, and presence of sin. Now, what comes to mind when we view the Lord's disposition toward people in need of those things, in need of his salvation? As I thought this through, I went through the Gospels, and I looked at passages like Matthew 9, verses 35 and 36. I'll just summarize what these passages teach. The Lord Jesus has a compassionate concern for spiritual and physical needs. He saw the crowds and he had compassion for them. They were like people who were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. When he had gathered people elsewhere, he says, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. The Lord Jesus, not only concerned with the spiritual aspect of our well-being, but also our physical Aspect. He has a willingness to draw near to sinners, according to Mark chapter 2. He was found eating with tax collectors and sinners. He draws near to sinners. He is fra- uh, called in Matthew chapter 11, verse 19, a friend of sinners. What marks our ministry to the addicted? Are we that standoffish, self righteous, judgmental type? Or are we seeking to embody the grace of our Lord Jesus, who is to us a friend? We learn in Luke chapter 7 of how he desired to draw near to those who grieve. Think of the addicted that might come into our midst, who are addicted to things in the midst of deep grief, profound struggles. When the Lord saw the widow at Nain, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Coming alongside, ministering his grace. Remember that Jesus talked about what it meant to love our neighbors, the one who challenged him and said, Well, Lord... Just help me understand what it means to love my neighbor. Help me define what a neighbor is. We recognize that he told that scandalous parable of the Samaritan man who stopped to help what should be his enemy. And what did he tell his challenger? But which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, you do, you go and do likewise. Are we seeking to love our neighbors in self-sacrificial ways as the Lord would teach would be acceptable? I know that the, the reason he's teaching that is to help the person realize that he's not as righteous as he might have thought. But surely there's a practical lesson there in understanding what it means to love our neighbors. Jesus specifically points to the example of the Samaritan man Not the priest or the Levite, those extra religious people, as the one that the lawyer should imitate in order to love his neighbor well. Now, we've talked a lot about God's grace. We've seen embodied in these scriptures the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the compassion, the desire that he has to help. Does that mean that we jettison the truth? Does that mean that we are to refuse to tell people hard truths about how their problem is actually a sin issue at its root? If we're thinking theologically, we would conclude, no, Jesus is one who is full of grace and what? And truth. We would do a disservice to people that we try to help if we skip over that. Jesus himself in John chapter 4 doesn't shy away from the woman at the well's sins. Not only does he cross cultural boundaries, not only does he seek to speak graciously to her, but he speaks graciously to her in drawing out her sinful lifestyle. In Luke chapter 7, verse 36 to 50, he doesn't ignore the sins of the woman of the city, as she's called. In John chapter 7, verses 50 or verse 53 and following, he doesn't overlook the adulterous woman's sin. And surely we recognize that Zacchaeus was a renowned sinner. Jesus doesn't overlook his sins either, but says, today salvation has come to your house. So consider our three visitors again. If the 22-year-old homeless meth addict comes and sits in the front row, he's obviously different from the rest in how he appears. But are we going to pass him by like the Levite, or will we prove to be a neighbor to that man who maybe hasn't eaten? What might our answer to that question say about us and the culture of our church? Now, I am very, very encouraged, even from my own personal experience, about how God's people that make up Emmanuel Baptist Church are full of grace and truth. Because when I used to come here on Sunday morning after Sunday morning with alcohol on my breath, no one turned me away. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ was evident through the people of Emmanuel Baptist Church. And to be clear, I'm talking about before I was saved. Not this morning when I led worship. If the middle-aged Christian woman dared to open up on her first visit about her addiction to porn to a lady in our church, would she be met with harsh condemnation or a heart of gracious compassion and a willingness to gently call sin, sin, when the time was right? Would our 50-year-old businesswoman, with a, or, sorry businessman with a gambling problem whose wife is exhausted because of the whole ordeal be met with people who genuinely care not only for their spiritual well-being but also for the fact that they're embodied souls who are really, really struggling to get rest in this situation? Will our church demonstrate the gracious, truth-filled compassion of the Lord Jesus to, addict, to addicts who visit when we gather for worship? Now, we've talked about that person-to-person, that interpersonal skill of relating to people. Wow, what about practical ways in which we can be loving neighbors to those who visit in our midst? Let's think of some practical questions that might need to be addressed, particularly with this 22-year-old meth addict who's homeless. He hasn't eaten or slept somewhere where he's been safe for weeks. Is that person in need of food or drink or shelter? I met with a brother when I was on a conference for my other uh, job some time ago, and he was sharing how him and his wife had invited some addicted friends into their home. They had opened up their home to addicts in their community, and I was blown away by that kindness. Would we be willing to do the same thing? Is that person in need of immediate medical care? Is their personal safety at risk? These are practical ways in which we can... Prepare to minister well to the addicts in our communities. James says in James chapter 2, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead faith. So what can we do to prepare ourselves to work out the faith that we claim to possess? Are we ready and willing to help our community in times of need when the addicts from our community come to visit us? Consider now past the initial encounter. We've moved past now the encounter that we have with these three different people, and we want to think about how to care well in the longer term. What do we as a church need to see if we're to be equipped to take care of these people past the initial encounter with them? I want us to think about how we as a church evangelize and disciple those who are converted to Christ when they're addicted to various things. How can we establish a culture of grace? How can we equip our church to minister the truth and love? How can we educate our membership and the addicts who visit us, especially in the realm of addictions and the broader category of mental health disorders? How can we expand the reach of our own addiction ministry that we're currently involved in? Those four E's are basically this roadmap for faithful ministry as I see it as I've studied the issue. First off, establishing a culture of grace and truth. We don't want to be all on the side of truth. We don't want to be on the side of grace. But how do we combine those things such that we are growing evermore in Christ-like ministry to those who visit us? Would someone with an addiction feel comfortable asking for help based on what they see in our interactions with them? Do our churches, does our church strive for a Christ-like culture of care, or are we in the unfortunate end of the spectrum where public shaming and condemnation mark our ministry? I don't think that we're there as Emmanuel Baptist Church. It is a great blessing, as I've already said, to be a part of a congregation that seeks to grow in this, but already has this grace and truth culture established. Some passages that are particularly relevant, Colossians 3 Verses 12 to 17 describes our putting on spiritual clothing for fruitful and faithful Christian ministry. Galatians 6 verses 1 to 2 reminds us that spiritual people, those who are led walking by the Spirit, respond to the reality of sin with gentle restoration in mind. Matthew 7 verses 5 to 7, the words of the Lord Jesus, strictly forbid us from that self-righteous, judgmental attitude. Titus chapter 2, verses 11, all the way through nearly the end of chapter 3, gives so much hope to addicted people and those who seek to help them. There's so much hope in that passage, and I can't wait to preach it on Sunday evenings as the Lord gives opportunity, that people of all stripes can be transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We already read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, which encourages us to remember the power of the gospel to reach all kinds of sinners. Paul says, remember, such were some of you. There's freedom in Christ. Psalm 103 communicates the compassion of God towards his people, not dealing with us according to our sins, but separating us so far as the east is from the west, from our sins and the judgment that we deserve. There's forgiveness held forth in Matthew chapter 18. We recognize how much grace that we have been shown as we reflect on the forgiveness that we have received from the Lord. That's the kind of grace and forgiveness that we ought to be trying to pay forward. Galatians 6 verse 9 and 10 points us toward perseverance in doing good. Addiction ministry in whatever category you work, whether it's one-on-one discipleship, With someone in uh, in a pornography addiction or one who is enslaved to some kind of substance. It is hard work. People are stubborn. If you want to see how stubborn people are, look in your own heart and recognize how slow we are to change. But that passage is particularly helpful in causing us to persevere or encouraging us to persevere in doing good work. There are others. What we want to keep in mind as we think about this establishment of a gracious culture is how the lord has dealt with us we want this mindset to motivate us we want this mindset to guide us in whatever it is that we do to whoever it is that comes our way he has not overlooked our sins but he has welcomed us because of the grace of the gospel when we think rightly about establishing a culture of grace we recognize there is absolutely no room For sinful partiality, there's no room for self-righteous judgmentalism for those who come into our midst who need just as much help as we do. A culture of grace is important, and it's not only important for establishing healthy redemptive relationships in our own congregation, but to hold forth the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to those outside of these walls. That's establishing a culture of grace. Let's look at how we might equip the church for a culture of care, a care that involves opening up God's word. There's many, many things that I could say about this. There's, there's a lecture in itself that I'd like one day to give about how every Christian is a counselor. We are all called to the ministry of God's word. We're all called to steward the teaching and preaching gifts that we have. Not everyone's called to preach, but we are, as disciple makers, called to teach what Jesus Christ has taught us. To make disciples of all nations, we all are involved in that great commission to make mature disciples. We are, as part of a growing culture of care in this church, called to one another one another. Romans 15:14 reminds us that believers who are full of goodness and filled with all knowledge are able to instruct or competent to counsel one another. Ephesians 4, verses 11 to 16, points us all toward mutual maturity in the Lord Jesus Christ as we take the equipping that we've received from pastors and teachers to speak the truth in love to one another that we would not be deceived by the things of the world but be grown up into Christian maturity, into the fullness of our head, admonishing and teaching one another in all wisdom, as Paul says in Colossians 1, verse 28. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 to 14, makes very clear that the ministry of the word is there for all of us to partake in. We're to admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak while remaining patient with them all. This equipping, this holding out this mandate for the church to be involved in this ministry is to start at the top. And I'm privileged to be able to say that Pastor Scott and I are on the very much the same page in helping you all do that. You're already doing it. You've been doing it since before I was a member of the Baptist Church. But we really want to see this direction set and steps taken so that we grow in our ability to do this well, such that we can come alongside those who are addicted in our communities with the challenges that they face. Maybe you're burdened for how to do this better. Maybe you're feeling the Lord pull you toward Counseling and discipleship training, that's one of the many different options that exist for churches around the world. It looks differently in different places. There's many different avenues. We've already started this as a congregation by working through the How People Change curriculum. We're going to get to instruments in the Redeemer's hands to learn what it looks like to take change from a personal level and hold it out in our congregation as we seek redemptive relationships with one another. There's official training like I've been a privilege to be a part of with organizations like the Addiction Connection. There's church-based counseling and discipleship training. There's Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. There's the International Association of Biblical Counselors. All of these different umbrella organizations that have a heart to see people equipped. If you want to know more about those things, if you feel a burden to learn more about those things, let me know. We can talk about it. There's seminary training. There's various degrees that can help us. Whatever it is that we're engaged in, whatever it is that we're doing, the goal is this. To bring the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to relationships where people are struggling, even struggling with addictions, so that we take our knowledge of sound doctrine and bring it to bear on people's lives. We see... People's lives transformed. We especially want to see biblical terminology used to define the problems that we're facing. We need to understand that addiction is not a disease. We we need to understand that addiction is not some supersized issue outside of the purview of the church to help with. We've already said that every addict has the same basic need as everyone who is not termed by that phrase, addict. The question is, are our churches, is our church being equipped to think through related issues of mental health, substance abuse disorder, or addiction, call it what you will? The world is very quick to offer solutions to these things. They've got some nice categories to talk with. Are we becoming adept at building a bridge between what the world says and what the Bible speaks to? The Bible speaks to these issues, as I said before. We just need to become skilled at helping one another see how to build a bridge between the world and God's word. We need to grow in discernment so that when our friends, our relatives come alongside us and say, I'm struggling with this disorder, this addiction, such and such over here, we can say, the Lord Jesus speaks to this in his word. I'm not quite sure how, but I'm going to ask someone who knows so that we can help that person and not push them toward things that are ultimately going to lead them away from the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to establish culture of grace. We want to equip people for the work of ministry. We want to educate our churches and addicts who visit them. We want, as a congregation, I believe, to have a grasp of what the Bible says about addicts and how to help them and their families. It's very important not to disconnect the struggling person from the family who is also struggling because of the burden that, that addiction Brings on that relationship. There are so many different biblical resources. Some of them are actually on the back table if you're interested in looking at those. But we want to make sure that the gracious, truth filled compassion that we exhibit toward one another is being also applied to the families of addicts who come into our midst. Keep the addict and their family on your heart as you're trying to help them, making sure to educate them from a biblical perspective what the scripture says about those particular issues are we being proactive as we educate ourselves for how to prevent addiction if we say that addiction is rooted in the heart and we know biblical principles to shepherd our children's hearts away from addictive behavior then are we being equipped to share those resources to Uh, minister to our families in those ways. Addiction-proof parenting is a book about biblical prevention strategies. There's a smaller version called How Not to Raise an Addict. And these all take biblical principles that boil down the heart issues of addiction and warn parents about what to do, what not to do. It's not a fireproof solution because our children will do what they will do but we're responsible to shepherd them in a direction of glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ with their lives. There's one more thing I want to touch on as part of this faithful ministry map. We've talked about establishing the culture of grace, equipping the church for a culture of care. You know, what can we do with one another and for one another in uh, ministering the word of God? How do we uh, educate our churches and the addicts who visit them? How do we expand our reach to the addicted in our communities, even in our own families? We may well be already working toward that harvest. How can we expand that? Think of this as the Great Commission portion of this faithful ministry map. The gospel went out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, In a similar way, how can we take what we're stewarding here and cause it to spread to impact our community for the Lord Jesus Christ? The objection comes up, "Well, we don't have enough time, we don't have enough people equipped, we don't have enough money to have a full-blown residential ministry to welcome men and women, 30 people at a time, to give them the medical attention, to give them the full-blown 24-hour, 7-day-a-week discipleship that they require. And I would say, yes, for this particular congregation, you are absolutely correct. But what are we stewarding that we can build upon with prayerful support from the Lord to reach more and more people with the gospel that we're already reaching? We need to be able to minister well when we can and within our means while praying for the Lord to grow our ability to do more. Is that any different from any other gospel ministry? Of course not. How can we reach our community with a commitment to biblical addictions ministry? Maybe we would start off ministering to the families where we know addicts are a part. Maybe we would start a midweek Bible study for those who we know are addicted that we can bring some of these resources with which we've educated our congregation and help them come to an idea of what is causing the problem, why they are addicted in a way that they are addicted. Maybe we would establish connections with law enforcement and corrections facilities so that those who have been incarcerated because of some activity related to an addiction that they have could come to know Jesus Christ, have their lives transformed, come out of jail, start an addiction ministry for themselves. Maybe we could connect with organizations like the Addiction Connection so that we can be connected to organizations who are like-minded, eager to support us in those ways. I'm out of time. I've actually gone over. Let me give you an encouragement and a challenge. We're all already doing a lot of this ministry. I want you to be assured that you are already, we are already as a church, breaking open the word of God to one another. We already have this culture of grace. We are already praying for and seeking to reach the addicted in our families and possibly even our communities. Be encouraged in that. You already know what it looks like to minister well to addicts. But where tonight is the Lord calling you to grow in that ministry? What else can you do to be equipped to take your abilities to the next level such that the mystery surrounding addiction is removed to a greater degree and you become more proficient at ministering God's word to those who need just as much help as you and I, who are defined at this moment in time by a a voluntary enslavement to some substance, activity, or attitude. Let me close this with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that you've given an opportunity for us to study this together. We're thankful to be a part of a church where there is a culture of grace that has been established. God, I'm so thankful for that ministry of grace in my own life, how it's been transforming in my own life, and the burden that you've given me, that you've given others in this congregation to reach our community with the gospel. God, we're thankful that your word speaks authoritatively and sufficiently to the issue of addiction. God, help us as a congregation, even as individuals, to evaluate where we are. Would we take next steps to understand more fully what the world says about addiction compared to what your word says? Help us to establish further that culture of grace. Help us to equip one another for the work of ministry. Help us to become educated and be educating on the topic of addiction, mental health, and all of the other things that your word speaks clearly to that could be such a help to those who need Christ. And help us to expand our reach so that we would be a part of your kingdom work to make a mature disciples to those outside these walls so that more and more would be removed from that addiction, that lifestyle, that service of self, to the service of Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Abe.